costumes for about the same. All right. It looks like a lot more of you all spread out in here. So it's great to be with you this morning. And Gordon talked to me, said you're in the book of First Peter, and that's where we're going to be this morning. So please open your Bibles up to First Peter chapter 2. We're going to be in just two verses. I get a much smaller portion than you had yesterday, so I won't keep you near as long. We've got just two verses. First Peter 2, 11 through 12. And uh, once you're there, how many of you play sports? Keep your hands up. How many of you play an instrument? Are learning to play an instrument? How many of you are learning a language, a second language or a different language? Most of you are playing a sport, learning a language, or uh, learning an instrument. Well, that's going to be my illustration for this morning as we dive into our text. We're going to look at two arenas of personal holiness. Peter's going to write and address two different arenas in our life that he's concerned about, that God's concerned about. When we open up Scripture, God is after your heart. Obviously, we can all act a certain way and appear a certain way to people, but God isn't concerned with that outward appearance. He looks at the heart, we're told in First Samuel 16, 7 about David. God looks at the heart. And uh, look with me at these two verses. God is going to address our hearts. Peter writes and says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lust." which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, yesterday, I uh, listened into your chapel, and I heard Mr. Zanger speak to you and talk about the rhyme, the setup for the verses. We've got a special setup here as well, a certain order. And what we're going to see is an apostolic appeal. Peter writes to us with the authority from God. And he's going to say, I urge you. And then he's going to give an instruction and then he's going to give a motivation. So we have an appeal, an instruction and a motivation in verse 11. And then again, in verse 12. So look with me. He says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Now, Yesterday you heard that Christ is the basis, the foundation for our life, for our faith. You heard that because of him, life is possible. Because of him, we can be saved. Because of what he's done, we can know God. That is the basis for what we're going to read and what we're going to study this morning. God is concerned about your heart. And what, what is your heart? You ever think, what is your heart? Not your actual physical heart, but how do you describe your heart. It's your thoughts, your motives, your desires. It's the inner life. It's who you really are. People oftentimes now talk about identity and struggling with figuring out based on what other people think of who I am and how I fit in. But your heart, who you are on the inside, is who you really are. And that's what God's concerned about. That's what Peter is going to address here first, your inner life. So the first, the first arena is your inner life. Now, I grew up playing basketball. And I uh, played a lot of basketball. And there's a practice gym or your home gym. And then there's the away games, the away court. If you're in band learning an instrument, and you have your own band room. And then you have your performances. You're up on stage or you're in a marching band. And it's very different to be at home in your home court in your practice gym than it is to be away 
the rules are the same, right? The rules that govern everything are the same. It ought to be the same things you do, but somehow it's different when you're in a public setting, when you're in front of people, than it is when you're in practice. And probably, if you have a coach that's anything like my coach, you would say things like, beware how you practice. The way you practice is the way you're going to play. What you do in the practice court or in your home gym is what you're going to do when we're out playing a game. When it is serious, when the winning and losing are on the line, you're going to act and do what you've been doing in the gym. And he would challenge some of us, hey, don't show off. This isn't a time to do your fancy loop-de-loop layups or to do tricks, to do trick shots. This is a time to build the muscle memory, hit the free throws and practice and learn those things. Same with learning an instrument or learning a language. It's very different to study it in a textbook in a classroom and then to go out and try and speak with somebody who knows the language well. Here, Peter's going to address that inner life. We're in the practice gym, this arena And he's going to address that first. He says, I urge you. And this, Peter is our coach. He's coming alongside us and compelling us. The word here means one who comes alongside. He's grabbing us. Normally not a good thing if you're in practice and your coach comes up and singles you out, wraps his arm around you and says, hey, we need to talk. He's going to address something in your life or something that you need to do or change. And that's exactly what Peter's going to do here. But before he does that, he addresses them in a certain way. Look at these three terms. He calls them beloved, those loved by God, those who have been born again, those who love God. In 1 Peter 1.8, he describes believers as those who love Christ who they've never seen. They have a love for him and he has a love for them. But not only are they loved by God, they're loved by Peter. He's writing to these dear saints and appealing to them on the basis of what Christ has done in his life and on the basis of what Christ is doing in their life. And he calls them aliens and strangers. Would those be uh, names you guys would call each other? What's up, alien? What's up, stranger? Maybe we say those kinds of things. Here, the terms refer not to aliens from outer space, but to those who are from outside your household, those who aren't a part of your household, those who are outside, not a part of the familiar life. And the word strangers refers to sojourners or exiles. This word was used to refer to Abraham, who was a sojourner, a traveler, a foreigner, in a place that's unfamiliar. And these terms might seem unusual. Why does he refer to people as aliens and strangers? Well, look look back at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter writes and says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This term doesn't refer just to those who are living in a place that's unfamiliar. He's referring to those who are living in the world. Those who have been born again, whose hope and longing is for a heavenly city, not the city. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Read Pilgrim's Progress? Watch the movie. They just made a movie this last year. It's pretty good. You're a pilgrim. You're on a journey home. This is not your forever dwelling. And that's the idea. This is not your home. You're just passing through. And he appeals to them on the basis of their citizenship in heaven, on the reality that they are born again to a living hope. So that's the appeal. Then he moves to the instruction. Look with me at verse 11. I urge you to abstain from fleshly lust. The word abstain here means to keep away from or to flee The idea of Joseph, when you face temptation, he jumps up and flees. He runs for his life from 
the temptation that he's facing. It's to get up and go. And here, he's not talking about a physical get up and go, because look, he says abstain from fleshly lust. What are fleshly lusts? These are those strong inner desires, those strong urgings, strong cravings, you might say, the longings and desires of the heart. So I know you've got a uh, discussion group afterwards. What desires or longings do you have that control you? What strong desires or cravings do you have that motivate you to live or act a certain way? Some of the things that might motivate you might be wanting to please people. You want to be well thought of by friends around you. You want people to like you. You want to get along with others. Uh, Another strong desire might be a strong desire for success. People will work very, very hard if they get a little taste of success. Maybe you're finding that in school and sports or you know, in in playing an instrument and you're, you're picking it up easy and that little bit of success builds and you have a stronger and stronger desire for more and more. These aren't just wicked, ungodly desires for evil things, but the di- desire itself can be an evil thing, to have that strong desire that controls you. Now, when I played basketball, there was rules. You have these rules and guidelines that govern the game. But if you were really going after the ball, if you were really aggressive and had a desire to beat the other team, you might break the rules and hope that the ref didn't notice because the ref is the one enforcing the rules, right? Well, here, he's appealing to us, to our conscience, as those who have been born again as believers in Christ, that we would have a renewed mind, a renewed conscience, and we'd be able to discern what kind of desires we have that are evil, what kind of desires we have that are fleshly and belong to our former self, our former life, and what kind of desires we have that belong to the new man, to Christ. We need to be able to discern these things. And Let's take a look at this. He has actually already talked about this before. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust. That's the same word, epithumia, desires, strong desires, which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. I have a strong desire just about every single night for ice cream. I don't know if any of you guys are that way, but I, every night, it just seems to be that I want ice cream. And that desire can motivate me to jump in the car and drive to Dairy Queen or drive to the grocery store and buy ice cream if we're all out. That desire can motivate me to drive further if there's a certain kind of ice cream or a special one they don't have at our store to drive to a further place. That desire motivates me. Is ice cream a bad thing? No. Hopefully you can all agree with me on that. Ice cream is a good thing. It's a very good thing. But the desire for it can be strong and sometimes lead me to sacrifice or give up other things. Maybe I should just spend the night at home with my family and not jump in the car. Or maybe I'm telling myself, hey, we'll all spend time together. Let's all jump in the car and go have ice cream. That strong desire. And that's just a craving. There are other strong desires that you have in your heart. Strong desires for good things and strong desires for bad things. And it takes a level of discernment to know which is which. What kind of desires control your life? And here he says, abstain from the fleshly desires. These are the bad desires that we must stay away from. He talks about this in uh, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, and explains a little more what these desires are. First Peter chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He says, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. 
for the time is already past, or for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Look, the heart is an idol factory. Have you heard that before? The heart is an idol factory. It longs for something to worship, something to praise, something to pursue, something to go after. And Peter is going after the heart because God is concerned about your heart, about the things that motivate you, the things that drive you, why you do what you do. Sometimes we stop short of dealing with the fleshly lust. We say, oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have gotten angry at you. But we don't deal with the anger, the bitterness that was in our heart that caused us to lash out in anger towards a sibling or a friend or our parent. Peter is addressing the heart. Deal with your heart. And it starts there. It starts in the practice gym. If you don't do it in practice, you're never going to do it in a game. Your coach or somebody ever say that to you? If you don't begin to work on these things in your inner life, it's never going to manifest itself consistently in your outer life. If you can't hit a free throw in practice, you're not miraculously going to figure it out by game time. And here he's calling us, he's urging us to diligence, to discipline, to abstain from those strong desires that are worldly, that are selfish, that come from our flesh. And he gives us a motivation now. So we had our appeal, our instruction. And the question we say is, well, why? Why do I need to fight this? Is it really that important? Does it really matter that I deal with these little desires, these little times where I just give in because it felt right and I wanted to do it? He says, these desires, look with me at verse 11, these desires wage war against the soul. They're attacking you. These little desires are literally described here as soldiers that are marching against your soul. Now, probably none of you have ever been to battle, but you've probably seen a war movie or a battle scene before where a bunch of individual soldiers are marching against other soldiers. This is the idea of hand-to-hand combat, of individual soldiers coming and attacking repeatedly over and over against your soul. This is a spiritual battle. It's an ongoing attack against you from your own heart. These fleshly desires that rise up within you, desires that are strong and will overpower you if you do not abstain, if you do not flee from them. A few other places this word is used help inform our idea of what it is. In 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight. That's the same word here. Wage warfare against those desires. Wage warfare against the attacks of the world. And in 2 Corinthians 10.3-4, Paul writes and says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We're not fighting hand-to-hand with the same kind of weapons that our enemy is coming at us against. We have special weaponry, special defenses given to us by our Lord himself. In Ephesians 6, it talks about spiritual warfare. Some of you have probably read that or are familiar with it. The idea that God's given us everything we need to fend off, to defend ourselves in the battle that is raging for our soul. The weapons we have are the Word of God and the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who pricks our conscience and tells us you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't want that. You shouldn't pursue this. And when our conscience is pricked, when those desires arise within us, that's the time to run. That's the time to flee. Don't linger and say, well, is it that serious? Peter says it's waging war. And look at the object of the battle. He says against your soul. These are not minuscule little battles. These are not tiny little issues. 
There's a war going on in your own heart and mind in this inner life, and it will last for the rest of your life. You know, I remember growing up and thinking that it was me every day in kind of a boxing match was the way I visualized it. It was me every day boxing, trying to defeat my sin. And some days I woke up and felt really strong. I felt really powerful. And some days I would win. And many days, a lot of days I would lose. That's not what's described here. We're given all the resources we need. And we're not walking into this hand-to-hand with the same kind of weapons the world has. We have spiritual weapons. We have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit indwelling us. As we attack these desires, the truth comes to mind and reminds us. It tells us and identifies those issues, those things we're tempted to and drawn to, those desires in our heart. How many of you think of it this way? You think of it as a battle. When you wake up and you don't want to do something, normally, don't we think this way in our head? We wake up and we say, I don't want to. Maybe you don't say it out loud, but maybe... I've got a little three-year-old at home, and we tell her, hey, Elizabeth, you need to run and go do this. We, tell her, we give her some instruction, and immediately she says, why? Why do I need to do this? She wants to know the motivation. And then immediately she says, as soon as we tell her what she needs to do, she says, but I don't want to, but I don't like this, but I don't feel like doing that. And she starts to reason and push against the instruction that we've given her. Don't we do the same thing? We're told, we're given instructions from Scripture, and we say, well, I don't really want to. I don't really feel like it. I don't know if this is the most important. I have a desire to just stay in bed. I don't want to wake up early and spend time in the Word. I don't want to go to church when I can take a little longer nap or go to this event that I know I ought to be at, but I have a desire just to do my own thing. I want to be my own person and do my own thing. That's a war. Those are little soldiers. Each one of those desires is a soldier attacking your soul. Look with me real quick at Romans chapter 7. Paul describes this same kind of inner experience, this battle with the inner life in Romans chapter 7. Go with me all the way to the end of Romans 7. Romans 7, 21. Paul writes and says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. How many times in practice are you forced to do something you don't really want to do? We had to run what they called suicides, where we had to run up and down and back and forth through the gym. We had to do it over and over again, and then we'd have to shoot free throws. And they'd have us line up and shoot free throws. If somebody missed, we had to run walls, and you'd run back and forth. We'd get to the end of practice and just be so beat, and we'd say, well, this is good for you. It'll help you when it comes to game time. And we wondered, really, coach, is this really going to help us? Here he says, this battle is essential because it's for your soul. It really is worth it to deny yourself in those moments when you're telling yourself, I don't want to. So think with me. Do you know the cost of giving in? If you give in to those desires, if you let those soldiers win as they attack your soul, do you know the cost of giving up? This is a powerful motivation because... If you know the cost of giving up, you also know the joy and the power of Christ in overcoming those desires. There used to be things before I knew the Lord that 
dominated my life, my own way of thinking. When I wanted something, I did everything I could to achieve it. And when I got saved, my desires changed. I had new desires. And those new desires come into conflict with that old way of thinking, that old style of life. And that's a healthy thing. That's a healthy thing when you say, I know I need to do this, but I don't want to, but I'm going to anyways. I'm going to abstain from what I want to do to do what I know I need to ought to do because God's concerned about your heart. He's concerned about your soul. That's the first arena, the inner life. This is the practice gym, but nobody would show up for practice and work really hard if they weren't going to actually go to a game. I rode the bench a lot of my years of playing basketball, so I got to go to a lot of games, didn't get to play in very many, but there was an intense joy when I actually got to get in the game and play and do what I'd been practicing, to do what I knew how to do. But there was also this pressure when you're in front of people, maybe you play an instrument, and all of a sudden you're up on stage and it's very different than it was when you were just practicing by yourself in your room. For me it was guitar. Practicing by myself in the room was very different than being up in front of somebody. And when you're up in front of somebody, there's that added pressure and awareness that people are watching. People are wondering what I'm going to do. And you might start to feel and wonder, do I really need to still work hard and be diligent in the inner life? Peter says, yes. Look with me at 1 Peter 2, verse 12. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And actually, in the Greek, what comes first is your behavior. That's put at the front of the sentence because this is so important. Your behavior is essential. Not only is your inner life a battle that must be won, but how you act must be won as well. This is stepping onto the away court, onto the way field. How are you going to act? How is your practice going to pay off? How's that going to be reflected? All those hours you've put in, how's that going to be reflected now that you're in a setting where you're being watched, where you have competition? He says, keep your behavior excellent. Your behavior is your conduct, your way of life, the way you live. And that ought to represent what's going on inside of you. How many times do you bite your tongue? You think of something, you think of a really funny remark, you think of something you want to say, but you bite your tongue and you exercise self-control and don't say that remark. But then sometimes you say, hey, I thought of something really funny. I, I'm not going to say it. And your friends are like, well, just go ahead and say it. What was it you thought of? And you go ahead and say it. Giving in to those desires, you won the battle in the inner life, but then you're around friends, you're around peers, and they cause you to lose the battle. You give up and say something you shouldn't have said or think something you shouldn't think and express it publicly. This is the idea, but here he says in the Gentiles or among the Gentiles. This is in everyday life, in the world, the unbelieving world around you. Some of you may be a little insulated. I know I sure was growing up. My parents wanted to keep me safe and uh, protected from some of the worldly influences and environments that are out there. So I grew up going to church. I grew up being homeschooled not too different from a Christian school setting like you with a co-op we were a part of. And I was pretty insulated a lot of times from the world and the pressures of the world that were coming in. But when I had the opportunity, God's work in my life and the values my parents had instilled in me were tested. And by God's grace, I was able to stay faithful. Not always. It's not that you're perfect. But when you step into the real world, you've learned the things so well in practice you step up to the free throw line and you're not thinking about the pressures of everyone watching and the fact that the game's on the line. You're envisioning yourself in your home gym, whew, shooting the shot, hitting the free throw. 
That's the idea here. Your inner life is so cultivated that when you step into the public square, you're consistent. This is a description of integrity, that you're the same person. You have a level of character that you act the same in different settings. Someone has described integrity this way. Maybe you've heard this. Integrity is who you are when no one's looking. Have you heard that? Who you are when no one's looking? Let me refine that a little bit for you. Integrity is who you are when only God is looking. Because God is always looking. God always sees your heart and he knows your motivations. But character is who you are when you step out into the public square. It's a reflection of that integrity. It's who you are as represented to the world around you. So how aware of you are the connection between your inner and outer life? There's these two arenas that Peter draws for us. Do you think about it this way? Do you think about your life as inner battles that you have to beat and an outer world that's watching, that's giving you opportunities to stumble? Do you look at yourself and say, I need to discipline myself now in the private moments and the quiet of my heart and my personal time with the Lord so that when I step out into that arena, when the pressure's on, when I have peers and friends tempting me and giving me situations, when the world's pressing in and challenging my faith and what I believe, do I have the level of integrity that was developed that the character's going to be displayed as I live among the world? He says, pressures are going to come. Look with me at the rest of verse 12. He says, so that in the thing in which they slander, slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The idea is the world is going to come and call you names. They're going to come and characterize you as somebody you're not. And the defense you're going to have isn't going to be some elaborate reasoning that you've developed where you can argue your way out of what they're calling you. It's going to be the fact that your integrity was forged in that inner man. That your heart has been developed to the point where you're consistent. People know you and your behavior speaks for itself. Jesus put it this way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When people look at you, who gets the glory? Is it you? Oh, you're such a great person. You're such a great kid. You do wonderful things. You've got good grades. Your behavior, the way you conduct yourself, you're so mature for your age. You say, that's me. Yes, I am a wonderful person. I'm a wonderful human being. Thank you for noticing. Thank you for appreciating me. Do you say, you know, this is God working in me. This is God's work in my inner life that's being reflected in the way I act around you. This is God who changed my heart and gave me new desires and a new ability to follow him and please him. Notice here, he says, because of your good deeds as they observe them, the world is watching. They make this accusation. They accuse you of being an evildoer, but they're watching. They see what's going on in your life, and there's no basis for them to continue to accuse you when they see your good character. The only thing they can accuse you of is your good deeds. The only thing they can accuse you of is your character. You know, we've got a... uh, Supreme Court nominee who's being attacked for all sorts of things. I don't know if any of you watched that or saw any excerpts of it, but she's going up in front of people, and the things they're accusing her for are actually very good things. The only things they can accuse her for are for being pro-life, for standing for truth, for standing against the lies of the world. And that's all they can accuse her of. They've plumbed the depths of her life for all these years, and they've looked for things to accuse her of. 
Now, I don't know where she's at with the Lord, but what a wonderful thing if people could look at your life and examine it and only come up with good things to accuse you of. And the Lord is watching these things at the bottom. It says, glorify God in the day of visitation. And that's a reference to a day of vindication, a day of justice. How many times have you been wronged in your life? How many times has somebody done something wrong against you and you've been trying to do the right thing? You've been trying to be faithful and follow the Lord and you're accused or you're attacked for different things. It will only increase as you grow older. It will only increase. But if your inner life has been conducted in a way that's honoring the Lord, your behavior will become a means for the Savior himself to praise you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You'll be vindicated. And not only that, those wrongdoers will be judged. Those who have accused you, those who have looked at you and slandered you for your good behavior will be judged for that. And that's the day of visitation. In Scripture, it refers to a day of justice and clarity on all matters in this life. Being face-to-face with the Creator, with our Savior, and the judge of mankind. So we've got these two arenas. The practice gym where of your inner life, where you can hone the skill, hone your ability in fighting sin and fighting the temptations and desires that well up within you. But then there's the outer arena, the public square, where you're in the world, but not of the world, where you're challenged to live out what you actually believe. Do you see those as connected? Do you think of your life this way, that there's a battle going on for your heart and for your mind? That those little desires, those little times you deny yourself and follow Christ are victories. Those are spiritual victories in your life. That's what Peter calls you to when he says, I urge you, abstain from fleshly lust. Keep your behavior excellent. And that's only possible through Christ. Christ is the only one who has the power to work through us and in us and overcome these things. And my prayer for you and hope for you is that as you grow up, you'll begin to think through in kind of this paradigm. You know, James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not your pleasures that wage war among you? The reason for any conflict in this world, the reason for any disagreements or any conflict you may feel inside yourself is competing desires. It's desires of your heart that are expressing themselves, some in sinful ways and some in good ways. And he says, abstain from those fleshly ones. Keep your behavior excellent in this world. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful for your word and Lord for the challenge because of what Christ has done in us. Lord, that we have new desires, that we have this competition going on. Lord, we ask that uh, our hearts for each of these students, that as they think through their own heart and mind and those specific desires they have that are seeking to destroy them, that are seeking to attack their soul and their walk with you, that, Lord, they might find the truth of your word and um, applied diligence in living it out and abstaining from those wicked desires that rise up and Lord and conducting themselves in a manner worthy of you in a manner worthy of what you've done in their life give us all grace Lord as we look to the days and weeks ahead and know there are challenges we know there will be accusations against us may we be ever faithful to you in your name we pray amen